Our text this morning is Acts 17, the verses 1 through 9. Acts 17. One through nine. In chapter 16, we read that Paul and Silas, who are on their, or Paul is on his second journey, as it is recorded in Acts. They were in Philippi and they ended up in prison there. They had been flogged, but finally they had also been released. And now we continue in chapter 17 after they left Philippi. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring him out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then Paul and Silas travel on to Berea. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians was written quite soon after his visit and his work in Thessalonica, only perhaps a few months later, three months perhaps, because Paul had been forced to travel on And he had gone to Berea, and then he had gone to Athens, and there he had waited for Silas and Timothy to join him because they had gone back to Thessalonica. And then as he is going into Corinth to do some work there, then he writes these letters, 1 Thessalonians, and soon after, 2 Thessalonians. And you notice in 1 Thessalonians 2 that when Paul speaks about his visit that had come, and his work that had come to such an abrupt halt, he had to flee the city, he was not allowed to come back anymore, that he says, our visit was not a failure. 
It had not been for nothing. Even though they had been forced to move on, he says, we did tell you the gospel. We spoke to you as men that were entrusted by God and approved by God to bring the gospel. He compares himself to a mother who cares selflessly for her children or a father who directs, who guides, who teaches. He said, that's what I did when I worked with you. So he describes in 1 Thessalonians 2 the work he did and how he did it and how he was received. And he's so thankful that the congregation there in Thessalonica accepted that word indeed as the word of God which is at work in them. In several of his letters, Paul writes about his work as a preacher, how he did it, why he did it, what motivated him. He speaks about being commissioned by Jesus Christ. He says in one of his letters that he cannot but speak the gospel. He is under obligation, so to say, to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, when you compare the book of Acts with the letters of Paul, then you have uh, two beautiful pictures that complement each other. In the book of Acts, we see the historical development, how Paul traveled, his first journey, his second journey, all the cities he visited. And then in his letters, we hear the personal contact that he had with these churches and his relationship with them after he had worked there. It's good to at times also connect those two because you could say these letters, they, they give also the insight in how Paul did his work. In some of the uh, description in Acts, I think especially of the first missionary journey, the chapters 13 and 14, we learn a lot more about what Paul preached. You have here whole parts that come out of his sermons. In the second journey that we are now dealing with in chapter 17, a lot less actual contents, more description. What, in a few words, what he did. And that is very helpful. Helpful for us also as we look at what is the task of the preacher. And I think of what we agree upon in Article 16 of our church order, where we define the task, the specific duties of the office of the minister of the word. And then the first thing that we mention in Article 16 is that the task of the minister is to thoroughly and sincerely proclaim the, to the congregation the word of the Lord. And then that is added to administer the sacraments, to call publicly upon the name of God on behalf of the congregation to instruct the children of the church in the doctrine of salvation and so on. But it begins with thoroughly and sincerely proclaiming the word of the Lord. That is what we see as central in the task of a minister, what we see as central in the task of of the church, preaching. And that is why what we read in our text this morning is very helpful. 
Because there Paul speaks about, or Luke, who is recording here, he speaks about that work of Paul, working with the word, making sure that indeed it is the word of Christ that is preached. So I'd like to summarize our passage with Paul's own words in verse 3, where he says, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. There's kind of the, the sum of what Paul is doing there in Thessalonica. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So let's have a look at this text and, and what is happening here. Of course, we have to pick up what also was recorded in the previous chapter. And we notice in the beginning of chapter 17 that Paul and Silas are on the move again. They're traveling They travel from Philippi to Thessalonica, about 160 kilometers. And they pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, perhaps. They just spent the night there, and they moved on again. So they end up in Thessalonica. The city still exists today, Thessaloniki. And there he worked for at least three weeks. It doesn't tell us why Paul didn't stop in the other cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Some suggest that because there was no synagogue there, Paul moved on. Because typically he would begin his work in a city with starting in the synagogue. And then from there he would work out. Possible doesn't say here. And of course, when you read the book of Acts, what it does come out is that Paul's journey is governed by the Holy Spirit. Certainly, this second missionary journey when he was still in Asia Minor, there was a spirit who forced them to go to Macedonia. The spirit is in control. Because behind that is the sovereign good pleasure why the word goes to one city and not to another. Not because of anything in this city, but because of God's love and good pleasure. And so Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica, major city in Macedonia, and they hope to work there for a while. The three things, as they come into the city, the three things that need to be taken care of. They have to look for lodging. You need a place to stay. So they must have looked around to find something. It seems that they were able to find a place. Jason took them up. It says, we read that later on in our text, when Jason is accused of things, he is the one who harbored them, who, who gave them accommodation. Whether Jason himself also had come to faith, we do get an impression that he may have run an, an, an inn. And so Paul stayed there, and Silas, and through Paul's work and speaking with Jason, Jason too had come to believe in Jesus Christ. So they had a place to live. Secondly, they had to look for work. Paul always relied on his own work as a source of income. Paul did not want to be paid by the churches. And we learn also in 1 Thessalonians 2 that he made a point of that when he came into Thessalonica that he, that he looked for work. Now Paul is a tent maker, so that could be making tents, repairing tents, 
that involves a lot of leather work um, and fixing torn pieces of a tent and, and so on. And Paul did that to supply himself and the others with income. He did not want to have the churches to feel obligated to provide for him so that the gospel was free of charge, he says somewhere else. Third thing, and this is the most important thing in our text, he looks for the synagogue. And he goes right away to the synagogue. Thessalonica had a large Jewish community. I read that up to the Second World War, one of the largest uh, Jewish colonies outside of Palestine. The Nazis destroyed most of it. But there was a sizable Jewish community, and there Paul goes. At least three Sabbaths to work. Now, we don't read in our text the full extent of those three weeks. Again, look, summarizes it, compresses it, brings out the main points. It has a result, though. It says in verse 4 that some of the Jews were persuaded, but a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So it's wonderful to see that work of Paul having effect in that some Jews, but also some Greek, and the women of had leading position in the town were joining the church. And to them, Paul writes that letter that we read from 1 Thessalonians. Now, as we read, the way Luke describes the work of Paul here, then, yes, we don't get a detailed uh, explanation of all the things that Paul said, as we do, for example, in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. But note what Luke writes down. How he describes the work of Paul, because not only do we learn something about Paul, we also learn so much about it for us today. And the three things that I like to highlight when we look at the verses 2 and 3, the three things I want to highlight, it shows us the basis of Paul's preaching. It shows us also the manner in which he did. And you also see the contents. So it, it's the basis, the manner, the contents of Paul's preaching. Let's, let's look at that. The first thing is the basis. And verse 2 Paul, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue, and it says, in three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There you have the basis. Paul was a minister of the Word, the Scriptures. And as he came and he preached, anywhere he went, he brought the Scriptures. He preached the Scriptures. He opened them. Now, when you hear the word scriptures, you think of your Bible. That's good. But Paul, what kind of a Bible did he carry with him? What, what written word, because that was scriptures mean, the, the written word, what did he have? He had the Old Testament. The New Testament was not yet completed. There may have been some, but most of the letters that Paul will himself will write end up in there. The Gospels were not completed yet. They were still also in the process of being made. 
So what he carried with him was the Old Testament. Or when he went to the synagogue and they had the scrolls there of the Old Testament, he would use them. That is what he calls the Scriptures, the Word of God. It's good to keep in mind when we hear Paul speak about the Word or the Scriptures, then that we think of the whole Bible. And that was good for us, it is. But keep in mind that for Paul, that was just at that point the Old Testament. So for him, that Old Testament was very important. That was his basis for his preaching. Paul didn't come to bring something new, a new system, something innovative. He says, no, I open the scriptures to you. This is the word of God because on that basis you are built. That's where the church is born from, the word of God. And that's why it's so beautiful that in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, I'm so thankful and I thank God continually that when you receive the words that he spoke, you accepted it as what they really are, the words of God. Through what we preached, God came to you and so you accepted it and it is at work in you. So that's the basis. The scriptures as the word of God. That Paul preached. Secondly, how did he do it? Paul doesn't say, well, here's the Bible. You have the scrolls. Read them, think about them, and let me know. There are four verbs used in verses 2 and 3 that help us understand how Paul worked in his preaching. Because Paul knew that God not simply had said to the, uh, the Lord Jesus, had not simply said to his apostles, just make sure the Bible goes out there. The Lord had said to his disciples, you have to administer the word. You have to preach it. You have to proclaim it. You have to apply it. So the congregation received through your work the word of God. Four verbs. In verse 2, the verb reason, he reasoned with them. And then in verse 3, explaining, demonstrating, and then in the end, preaching. The very last, this is the Jesus whom I preach to you. So, reasoning, explaining, demonstrating, preaching. Let's look at those. The first one, reasoning. What does that mean? Well, reason means that you can think about something, that you present arguments. This is why. This is how this is now fulfilled. With Think of Paul in the synagogue there, having, let's say, a scroll of Isaiah, as the Lord Jesus himself did when he was in the synagogue. And he read these parts of Isaiah, and then he reasoned from them. He says, look what God is saying here, and how he's explaining the gospel of salvation. Or maybe he read from Leviticus uh, all those laws about the sacrifices and, and the feasts and the Day of Atonement. And he reasoned with them. The, the preaching is not a magical formula that just is thrown out there and when you use some magic, you accept it, you are saved. 
it has reason to it. It has to be argumented. It has to be shown from Scripture. It is true. This is what God's Word says. So that requires indeed thinking. It requires reflection. Effort. It's reason. And that is then in verse 3, further explained by the verbs explaining and demonstrating. So in explaining, you can say, Paul now opens the true meaning of Scripture. So do you know why in the Old Testament they had all these sacrifices? You know why in Isaiah it says here, I'll explain it to you. It is in Jesus Christ. It points to him. And I'll prove that to you too. And he would open the Bible and say, look, look at this here. Look at that there. Look at this text. So reasoning leads to explaining, proving, opening the mind, understanding the truth. Same two words, explaining and demonstrating, are used in the Gospel according to Luke when the Lord Jesus meets those two men after his resurrection and they're on the way to Emmaus and they had heard all these things in Jerusalem and the Lord meets up with them and they don't recognize him and he asks them, well, what are you so busy with? And then he ex- they explain, well, haven't you heard what has happened? And then the same words, he, he explained and he demonstrated to them. He went through the Bible. He started in Genesis and explained what happened to Abraham and Joseph and Moses. That's what Paul does too. And that leads to the fourth verb. And that is kind of the, the, the end of it. This Jesus I preach to you. And preaching has in it the element of authority. There is something that you have to accept. And on behalf of someone else, I tell you this and you have to accept that. That's preaching. And it shows you that what Paul explains and what he demonstrates also has an urgency to it. You have to accept this. There's no other way out. Paul is not interested for an intellectual discussion and, and give you an opportunity to look at different points of view, maybe interesting. No, when he has reasoned, when he has demonstrated, then at a climax, and he says, this is not a Jesus that I proclaim. That's a Jesus that you have to believe in. So there's reasoning, there's explaining. It leads to the demand to accept it, and you have to make a choice. That's a preaching is supposed to do it's not just a free for all think about it and and go home and let it be like that there's a call that comes to you to repent and believe the call to faith and obedience so that's how Paul worked reasoning explaining demonstrating preaching Third element I said we also see here is the contents of his preaching. 
What is he explaining? What is he proclaiming? Well, that is in the end of in verse 3, the end is, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. This Jesus. The word this implies he has been talking about Jesus. So he has told the, the, the congregation there about the life of Jesus. Think of the Gospels. His birth. His miracles. His death. His resurrection. He had told them what they could not read, of course, in the Old Testament. The facts about Jesus Christ. That later on will be put in writing in the Gospels. Paul spoke about that. And he says, this Jesus, the one that I told you about. Yeah, what about him? And then you can also go up in verse 3. He says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So which Jesus is he proclaiming? The one who died and who rose. That summarizes it all. That is central to the preaching of the kingdom of God. The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That through him we have forgiveness of our sins. And we have a new life. Now this Jesus, he says... He is the Christ. He is the Christ. And again, there may be words that we're so familiar with. Of course, he's the Christ. But in the ears of the people, what does it mean? He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is your Lord. He is your king. He is your priest. He is your prophet. Here is what God has promised all along in the Old Testament to give to his people. The Christ, it summarizes all his work for his people. Now you have to believe in him. You have to know him. You have to follow him. You have to trust in him. This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And then I think of what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2. that He says, I encourage you. And I comforted you and I urged you to live a life worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So the contents of Paul's sermon was about Jesus Christ as the Christ who worked on this earth, who by his death and resurrection is our Lord, our King and our High Priest. And he proved that from the scriptures. He explained that from the scriptures. And the result, some Jews, but a large number of God-fearing Greeks and many prominent women believed. Before we go there, let's just reflect on this. Because I said to you, not only you will learn something about Paul's way of working... It also is a lesson for us, of course. Why would the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible? 
And let me just highlight a few things that, that we need to think about and take to heart. And the first question that comes to mind is when you read what it says here about Paul's work, is the question, what is preaching? How, how would you define preaching? Or what's a good sermon? When do you go home and say, it was a good sermon? What do you mean with that? Good sermon. What is a good sermon? Does it have to be captivating so that you are able to pay attention and don't get distracted too much? Does it mean some of the current events have to be included in it? Or does it have to include some stories, some examples, personal experiences, jokes? I'm sure that you're familiar that so many, so many styles of preaching are out there. And, and so many of them are, are entertainment. And they involve all kinds of multimedia just to keep people occupied and, 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 and their attention focused. But what is preaching? What is a good sermon? Well, it has to be based on Scripture. The Scriptures have to be opened, reasoned, explained, and then preached to you. The pulpit is not a place to advocate your own ideas, not the place to entertain people. It's only the place where the one medium is at work, and that's the medium of the Word, the living Word. Because it's in that Word, as Paul says, I'm so thankful that you accepted it indeed as the Word of God, which is at work in you. That's what's happening here too. God comes to you in his word. And a good sermon is a sermon that opens that word. Explains it. Proves it. And then proclaims it to you. Requiring your attention. Your thinking. And so Christ is presented before you. Notice that those four verbs also climax in that word preaching. And it also means that a sermon is more than a lecture. A lecture can be very interesting. A lecture where you explain things and so on. But a sermon wants to reach the hearts of those who are listening and demands Obedience. It's not a nice point of view that you can then consider and do whatever you want to do. No, it is Christ who comes to you and says, You're mine. You belong to me. I died for you. You died with me. You've been raised with me. So you're mine. Now you have to follow me. And here's the proof. Here it is in the Bible. I give you forgiveness, I give you eternal life, and you receive my word, and you let that determine everything you do. Living a life worthy of the kingdom, 
in which God has placed you, the kingdom of his glory. I asked the question, was a good sermon? But of course it also has repercussions for what's the task of a minister, of a preacher. What do you look for in a minister, in a preacher? What do you expect of him? And we live in a culture where, in North American culture, where often a pastor or a minister is seen as the face of the church and, and he becomes kind of the this, this center of everything and he has to be involved in everything and he has to be visible in everything. And then when you look for ads for new pastors, then you see all the requirements to be able to be a visionary, be a dynamic person, be effective in communication, be a skilled counselor, have a passion for worship, have a passion for youth work. It's a lot of things. It's very hard to do all those things. It's no wonder that the dropout rate and the burnout rate is very high when you look at pastors and ministers and general Christianity. Because you overload one man with, with, with so much and you undercut the real power of his office by putting all these other things on there and not focusing on what it really is about and that is the word. What is the task of the minister? It is to bring that word and, and we have said as churches, let's set one man apart. He doesn't have to do work as Paul did. He had to, to repair tents in order to make a living. We said, no, we want to make sure that our men who bring the word have all the time and all the attention they can give to that so that they can administer that word. Not in the first place to please us, but to please God who tests us hearts. Although the amazing thing is that when you please God people will be pleased too. The true believers. The task the ministry is to dig into the scriptures. To open them up. To reason. To explain. To demonstrate. And then to proclaim it to you. That's why it is so beautiful. In Article 16 of our church order, we, we make that a, a, a rule that the specific duty of the minister is to thoroughly, there you have that, that explaining, that reasoning, that proving, thoroughly and sincerely bringing to the congregation the word of the Lord so that you may be kept in obedience to it. And may the Lord give that that indeed may continue to function well in this congregation and in our federation. Our text also shows, and this is the last part I want to highlight, the text also shows the result of Paul's work. In verse 4, we have that there were quite a few who accepted it, and then in verse 5 through 9 we read about those who rejected that preaching. 
the acceptance was by some Jews, but the multitude was Greeks, and among them, quite a few leading women. But then those who rejected were the majority of the Jews. And why did they reject it? Because they became envious. They could not accept that the gospel of salvation given already to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now is also for Gentiles. And rejection and jealousy leads to a riot. They fan up that rebellion and the agitate in the city and the city becomes disorganized and of course the city officials don't like that. They have quite a big ethnic uh, presence there of the Jews and if they become unruly what is going to happen so they take Jason and the others and what Jason has to do is he has to post bond that means that Jason has to put up money and say you make sure that these men do not come back here we don't want them here they cause trouble they have to go we won't put them in jail but you have to give security that they will not come back. And in First Thessalonians 2 and 3, we also read that Paul tried to go back there, but it says he was prevented. He could not. He has to move on. But the result is that these, these Jews, they reject what Paul had preached. So, so what it does... It shows you that when the gospel comes, when it is preached faithfully, you have always a twofold reaction, a twofold effect to those who accept it, to those who reject it. That's what the gospel does. When Jesus is preached as the Christ, then the sword of the Spirit penetrates hearts and you cannot leave it. You have to make up your mind. That gospel lays bare what lives in you. And if you have the humility to say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I need to change my life, then you accept this gospel with great joy. Then you accept it as the word of God at work in you. But if there's pride in your life, if you don't like to be told that you're wrong, if you don't want to be reminded of your sin, then that will lead to jealousy, to rejection. The word, when preached faithfully, it brings to the service the motivations of the hearts. Because that preaching of Christ is a stumbling block to those who trust in their pride. But it's a power of God in those who humble themselves. Brothers and sisters, the Jesus that is preached to you week after week is the Christ. Accept him and accept that word as the word of God at work in you. Amen.